Second Corinthians chapter two, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one. We are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul now writes as a minister and provides insight into the ministry that's been assigned to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the focus is on the call of God on one's life. And so he's going to describe what it means to be a minister. And the minister is gripped with passion. In Paul's case, it's the passion to preach the gospel, the message of Jesus, and the passion to help the churches, the people who belong to Jesus. So Paul then speaks of the triumph in Christ. We might think of this triumph as successes, those successes that are wrought by God by spreading the gospel and the knowledge of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the minister is a fragrance, an aroma, a fragrance of life to those who are saved, but a stench to those who are perishing. And so in light of the ministry, the minister has stern demands not to corrupt God's word, but to be sincere To be of God, to live in God's sight. That means in a state of constant accountability and then to speak and to say the things that Jesus says. In brief, the purpose of the ministry is the glory of God and the tools of the ministry are the word of God and the power that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. So he begins with the minister's passion. Look at verse 12. Furthermore, he writes, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, remember the book of Second Corinthians. Paul had originally planned to go to Corinth, but then he had to change his plans. And now Paul relates what happened as a result of changing those plans. The journey, according to the book of Acts, began in the book of in the book of Acts, began in the city of Ephesus. Paul leaves Ephesus and he goes to Troas in the hopes of meeting Titus. Titus is a person who was born and raised in the Hellenistic culture, a Gentile. Paul would continue to Macedonia, possibly Philippi. Now, in order to understand, and I guess I should have asked James to put up a map, but Troas was strategically positioned between the west and the east on what's called the Dardanelles. If you have a, if you have a Bible map in the back of your, of your Bible, there's the land peninsula of Turkey where the two land masses meet. Now, Troas was a city that was filled with antiquity. Luke writes that years later, a church would be established in Troas in chapter 20, verse 6 of the book of Acts. And it was, by the way, it was in Troas that Paul preached. And you'll remember that there was a kid up on the rafters. His name was Eutychus, and he fell from the rafters. He died at one of Paul's preaching whatever. 
And he went and he raised Eutychus from the dead. What started off as a triumph. Well, actually, what started off as a tragedy and trouble is going to end in triumph. Now, Troas also, for those of you who are interested, is the city that if you go about eight miles south, that's where the ancient city of Troy was. That's spoken of in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. So Paul comes to Troas. This place filled with antiquity, filled with all kinds of incredible stories. Paul winds up there and he's given an opportunity to preach the gospel. Yet in spite of this golden opportunity, Paul is troubled in his heart. Because Titus isn't there. He wants to meet with Titus because the burden of the issues of the Corinthian church continue to weigh heavy on his heart. And so as Paul is even writing this, what do you suppose is the reaction of the Corinthians as they read Paul's words? Are they aware that it was their behavior that caused his restlessness? Are they aware that Paul declines an opportunity to preach the gospel in the local churches of Troas in order to address their spiritual concerns? And so right away we begin to understand something both about ministers and about ministry. For ministers and ministry, life is all about decisions. And it isn't just for the minister, it's it's about you. Because your life is filled with decisions. What am I going to do for Jesus? Where am I going to go? How does God want to use me? How does he want to use my life and my circumstances and my gifts and my callings? Paul seems to suggest that there are two major aspects of his ministry. The preaching of the gospel and the care for the local churches. So what do you suppose should be the priority in that situation? Paul has to make a decision. Do I stay in Troas and preach the gospel? Or do I press on and go across the Dardanelles, go into Macedonia in the hopes of eventually finding Titus? Should I stay and preach the gospel? Or should I go forward and try to help a church in trouble? And by the way, Paul's decision to help the church in Corinth speaks volumes. Because because often choices aren't between bad and better. Sometimes the choice is between something good and something really good. What do you do when you're left with that kind of choice? For Paul... The journey starts off in sorrow, but it's going to end in joy. And that seems to be one of the reoccurring themes that takes place in the Bible. You'll remember the ladies on their way to anoint the body of Jesus. Remember, they've experienced the excruciating pain of watching Jesus betrayed, seeing him incarcerated and tortured and then crucified. And they're making their way to the grave and their hearts are broken. They are stunned and devastated. And then they find themselves at the tomb and the stone is rolled away and the body of Jesus isn't there. Or what about the two travelers on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday and they're stunned and heartbroken and devastated that Jesus has died only to discover that the scriptures have been right all along and that the Messiah had to suffer and die and then rise from the dead. And so Paul comes to Troas in order to find Titus. And although he was unable to find Titus, he is able to preach the gospel. And remember what Paul says when he uses the term gospel, it is the message of good news. And you'll remember what the message of good news is, that we are sinners in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ is that savior. And so we discover that God is, in fact, causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. And Paul will write about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In the place of trial and disappointment, sometimes God will open up an amazing opportunity. You find yourself in a position that you would never want for anybody else. 
an unwanted sickness, an unwanted issue. Something is going on, but God is using that issue or that illness. He's using that circumstance and he begins to put you in a place that you never dreamed that you would find yourself in. And God gives you a platform in order to share Christ, in order to talk about his love. We think about Joseph turning trials into triumph in Egypt. David in the valley of Elah. Daniel in Babylon. Now Paul in Troas. This disappointment is going to turn into an opportunity. But again, it begins to apply to each and every one of you here in the now in Denver. In Littleton. Wherever it is you happen to be from. You find yourself in this circumstance, and it may not be in the circumstance that you had dreamed of or that you had hoped for. Look what Paul writes. I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus, my brother. The word rest, by the way, translates a Greek word, anison. Yeah, you know that word, headache. There was a pill actually called anison. The word in in the Greek language means not headache. It means unable to relax. That's what it means. He says, I I was unable to relax. I, I was unable to rest. Service is no substitute for peace. He comes to this place. He gets to preach the gospel and hallelujah for that. But Paul longs for Titus and he wants to get word to the church at Corinth. Paul left Troas. He makes his way to Macedonia, almost certainly Philippi. Passes bypassing Corinth altogether. And it was at Philippi that Paul finally meets Titus and he gets the news. The news about the disciplined offender at Corinth. He's on the road to restoration. He gets the news from Titus. Guess what? Some people at Corinth hate your guts. But most people love you. Most of the people love you. They love your ministry. They love the letters. They love the encouragement. And so... That good news caused Paul to break out in a song of praise in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. Look what it says in verse 14. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. Proof positive that Paul wasn't a Harley man. Wrote a triumph. No, that's not what it means. That's not the meaning of the text. He says, now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Paul is making an appeal to an image that all of the readers in Corinth would have understand. And all of the readers in the Roman Empire would have understood a triumph, a Roman triumph. Paul isn't defeated. That expression causes us to triumph is a Greek phrase that's very interesting. Three ambonti emas or he mas. The verb triumbo had a technical meaning. It, it meant to lead in a triumph of conquered enemies. It's the same kind of triumph that's talked about in um, Colossians chapter 2, um, verse 15, where... Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made them a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in the in the culture of Rome. When you were a great general or the great leader of of an army and you defeated Rome's enemies, they would throw a kind of a special party for you now. In order for you to understand the party, let me give you an idea of what a triumph looked like. It was usually held in a major city in the Roman Empire, and hundreds of thousands of people were involved. Think of a spectacle like the Rose Parade meets Thanksgiving Parade meets Macy's Parade. Combine them all together. 
Combine them all together and you have the Roman general. He's in a quadriga. This is a chariot that is pulled by four horses. And in front of the quadriga is an army of incense bearers. The incense bearers would be to the right and they would be to the left. And there would be incense, myrrh, fragrances. And it would be like a smoke chain of fragrance going up. And then following them would be captives. There would be prisoners. There would be loot. Um, Plummer writes, the victorious commander is God and the apostles are not his subordinate generals, but his captives whom he takes with him and displays to all the world. St. Paul thanks God not for always causing him to triumph, but for at all times Leading him in triumph. The apostles were among the first to be captured and made instruments of God's glory. So the image that Paul is writing of is of Jesus. Jesus, who is not defeated, but who is the victor. Paul sees himself in the train of captives because Jesus Christ has has conquered him. In a Roman triumph, there is pomp, there is chariots, there are marching soldiers, there are foreign captives, there are foreign treasures. And so there's two kinds of captives. Those who would be sold into slavery... And those who were marching to the arena to be put to death as part of the Roman box office channel, not HBO, RBO. You would go and there's going to be this massive slaughter. And so Paul uses a word, fragrance, osme. We are Christ's incense. We're the precious incense that's going to be burned, producing a fragrant that fills the air. And the fragrant in that air reminded the person being honored and the soldiers who fought with him. This is the sweet smell of victory. And so there is this gigantic fragrance that fills the nostrils of the person who's being honored and the soldiers who fought with him. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where... The atmosphere was so thick with a particular smell that you actually walked home with the smell on you. I'm trying to think of, a, of an example, like at Celestial Seasonings in, in Boulder. If you ever go to where they, they pack the tea, there's a peppermint room, and the peppermint room, it's thick. You almost begin to choke on this smell of peppermint. And so for the captives who are being marched to the arena... This is the aroma of death. For the person who's being honored, it's the sweet smell of victory. For the people who are about to be put to death, it's the last thing that they will smell before they die. And so all the Romans watching the triumph would have been made aware of the victory. And so Jesus is the victor. He's the champion. He's the overcomer. He's the one who's defeated every foe. And how did Jesus do that? On the cross of Calvary. Jesus comes into the world. He dies the death we all deserve. And so his triumph is the resurrection. And we Christians ride in the procession. Think about what Paul is saying. Wherever the Lord goes, his servants, the saints, are there. We sing a song, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. F.B. Meyer wrote, wherever they went, men knew Jesus better. The loveliness of the master's character became more apparent. Men became aware of a subtle fragrance poured upon the air, which attracted them to the man of Nazareth. William MacDonald says, Paul has not suffered defeat in his warfare with Satan, but the Lord has won a victory and Paul shares in it. Remember what we saw earlier Remember, in chapter 2, when he says in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices, there was a spiritual battle that was taking place in this deeply divided church. But Satan wasn't going to get the victory. Jesus was going to ultimately triumph. And that's part of what Paul is saying. 
part of what Paul is saying is that what what Satan meant for defeat. Paul is transported in the image speaking of the triumph that's in Jesus And he uses that illustration in verse 15, for we are to God. Now he begins to he he begins to act on his own illustration. He says, for we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, do you understand what he's saying? He's using himself as the image of the incense that's being burned, the thing that's going up in smoke. And there are two groups of people. Those who are experiencing a victory. And those who are facing death. And that's why he says, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are are perishing. And by the way, the word translated fragrance isn't osme, like in the earlier verse. It's eudia. It's slightly different. We even have an illustration in our own language. If I use the word fragrant, what comes to your mind? Something that smells good. If I say odor, what does that say? If someone ever says anywhere near you, I smell something ripe. It probably is not a good thing. And that's what he's talking about. Again, Plummer writes, when a Roman imperator, this is the dictator or the emperor, triumphed. Clouds of incense arose along the route in the triumph train. That's the procession. Of the gospel of incense, of increased knowledge of God, is ever ascending. The apostles caused this increase in knowledge, and therefore they themselves are the fragrance that is life-giving to those who are on the road to salvation, but will prove deadly to those who are on the other road. What does this mean to you? You are entrusted with the gospel. And when you step into a circumstance, there's the familiar aroma of life to those who are being saved and the familiar aroma of death to those who are being condemned. And so here's part of the point that Paul is making. Paul is making the point, doesn't it make sense to you that there's going to be two kinds of people who listen to the gospel? Those who love it because it means life. And those who despise it and hate it and ridicule it and reject it. When you step into a circumstance where the gospel is being presented to those who are being saved, there's great joy. The gospel message means one thing to those who are being saved. And it means another thing to those who are being lost. To those who accept it, it's the pledge of a glorious future. To those who do not, it's an omen of doom. But here's Paul's point. God is glorified in either case. And you might be wondering, well, how is it that God is glorified? Well, because the gospel is the incense of grace to those who are being saved. But do you know what else it is? It's the incense of justice for those who are not. Does that shock you or surprise you? F.B. Meyer writes again, When therefore we are told that we may be to God a sweet savor of Christ, it must be meant that we may so live as to recall to the mind of God what Jesus was in his mortal character. It is as though as God watches us from day to day, he should see Jesus in us and be reminded, speaking after the manner of men, of that blessed life which was offered up as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling savor in that That language is something that some people find very, very offensive. How is it possible that the sacrifice of Jesus was a sweet-smelling aroma? Because 
it becomes the fuel for grace for each and every one of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And it becomes the necessary truth concerning justice because no one has to die. No one has to go to hell. No one has to live their life apart from Jesus and his love. And so Paul writes that even though at first it seemed that some people are deeply, deeply offended by what Paul has to say. He's putting it in terms that each and every one of us can understand. I got a call on my radio program about this very subject today. Well, how can I preach the gospel without offending them? Well, sometimes you can't. Sometimes the gospel will be offensive. And what is the gospel? You're a sinner. In need of a savior. Well, I I, I don't think I'm comfortable with that term. There's probably no more descriptive term to describe the human circumstance than sin. And there is no greater term to describe the solution than God's grace in Christ. And so Paul writes about the minister's demands. Look again in verse 16. It says, to the one, we're the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's making reference to the triumph. The people who are headed for death, the people who are headed for life, and then to those who are saved, the gospel smells like life. To those who are perishing... It doesn't smell all that pleasant. Do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5? Some of you may remember. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? This is the place where the glory of God, this is that little box that had the angels on top that contained Aaron's budding rod and and the manna and the the commandments of God and you would carry it around those of you who ne- never read the bible but you saw raiders of the lost ark it was that jewish box where allegedly the presence of God dwelt and when the philistines capture it in 1 Samuel chapter 5 they get sick there are tumors, there's internal bleeding, there are, there's death, there's destruction. But when the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to the house of Obed-Edom, it brings blessing and prosperity and joy and comfort. It makes perfect sense that for some, the gospel brings hope. And for others... A constant sense of agitation. So guess what, ladies and gentlemen? If you walk into a room and people cringe, you can smile. And you can say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. On the show, I I made mention of of an incident that I'd read about how Billy Graham was on a golf course and he was playing with one of the great golf pros, one of the legends of all time. And they were out there and they they played golf and then they came back to the clubhouse and the pro threw his clubs and he started cursing and and screaming. And one of the one of the caddies said, was Mr. Graham a little rough on you? And the golf pro said he never said a word. He never said one word. Just his presence got him convicted. No wonder Paul writes, who is sufficient for these things? Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, how are we to think about what's going on? I want you to think carefully about what's going on in the text. How are we to understand 
the consequences of preaching the gospel, of being entrusted with the gospel, being entrusted with the message of hope, the message of love, the message of life, the message of forgiveness. What are what are you supposed to think? How are you supposed to think about the fact that somehow, sometimes the only person who is ever going to hear the gospel is when you show up, you show up in their life and they begin to ask the question, what's wrong with me and what's wrong with my circumstances and what's wrong with my life and all of the stuff that you've learned. You're a sinner in need of a savior. And do you realize that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you understand that if you will repent of your sin and turn to Christ and embrace his life and his love? You can experience hope and forgiveness and grace and mercy and a new life. And it may take place when you're at school and it may take place when you're at home. It may take place when you're on the job. It may take place when you find your way into a hospital room. And the doctor looks at you and says, I don't know how else to tell you this, but the truth is that this person may not live through the night. And you sit down with them. And you tell them. And you don't want to be rude, but you figure they're going to die anyway. So if they're going to be mad at you tomorrow, oh well. And you tell them, have you made arrangements? And what arrangements are you talking about? You know, are, have you made arrangements about the next life. Do you know for sure that if you died that you're going to go to heaven? How can the Christian possess all that is necessary to be the best Christian possible, to be the best witness possible, to be the best soldier possible? Paul says, "Who is sufficient for these things?" Me? You? I have good news for you. Unfortunately, the answer doesn't come until chapter 3, verse 5. But because this is a Bible study and we can turn the page, go ahead and turn the page. It's chapter 3, verse 5. Look what Paul writes. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Look what the text says. But our sufficiency is from... God. Our sufficiency is from God. I don't even for a moment claim to have all of the answers to all of life's questions. I don't always know the right thing to say at exactly the right time. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that our sufficiency is of God. And that you get to speak as the oracle of God. The moment that you open up your mouth, the moment that you open up this book and you say, I don't know everything, but I do know this. I know that God loves you and I know that there's a solution to the problem of sin. And I know that Jesus Christ is the savior. Pay attention, by the way, to that word sufficient, because Paul is going to use it. Over and over again in this book of 2 Corinthians, Jesus is sufficient for our spiritual needs. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Jesus is sufficient for our material needs. Chapter 9, verse 8. Jesus is sufficient for our physical needs. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And so Paul is going to reiterate this over and over again. Whether it's a spiritual deficiency, whether it's a material deficiency, whether it's a Physical deficiency, God, Paul is writing that God is the one who can make the provision for you. And so in verse 17, look what it says. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Once again, Paul reminds the critics that his word can be trusted. Look what he's, he's contrasting himself in verse 17. For we are not as so many. Who are the so many? Who do you think Paul's making reference to here? 
It's the false teachers. I'm going to suggest to you that he's making reference to the Judaizers. He's making reference to the people who came to Corinth and who said, you can't trust Paul. And you can't trust his apostolic authority. And you can't trust his ministry. And you can't trust his message. Paul is in fact saying, no, I can be trusted. And I think that he's referring to the Judaizing teachers who sought to turn the people away, not only from Paul, but from Paul's gospel. And what was Paul's gospel? It's the gospel of grace. God loves you. Sin is a huge problem. It's a gigantic problem. But if you'll confess your sin, if you'll turn from it and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. But remember what the Judaizers came in. They came in with a different message. No, you've got to become a Jew first. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to observe the law of Moses. You have to observe the feast. You have to you have to observe the law. You have to be good and you have to be observant and you have to honor God. Here's the way you honor God. Eat what the Jews eat. Observe the Jewish law. Do what the Jews do. And by the way, what's Paul's argument? Paul's saying, was anyone ever saved by keeping the law? No. And so here's what he's saying. Paul is saying, these are the people who have corrupted the word of God. Who were the people who peddled the word of God? These are the people who corrupt the word of God. And by the way, Paul acknowledges that there are those who peddle the word of God. And this becomes important because you will listen to people on TV and you will listen to people on the radio and you will listen to people and they go, well, look, look what they're doing. They opened their Bible. They spoke words from the Bible. I even heard them use the name God and they use the name Jesus. And aren't these people, can't they be trusted? But when Paul uses the word peddle the word of God it's the Greek word kapeluo it's only here in the Greek New Testament it's derived from the word kaplos and kaplos I'm trying to think of a word that's not an an old antiquity type word do you guys know what the word huckster means some of you are old enough to know the word huckster what's another word for huckster Sham, charlatan, fraud. Now we're getting somewhere. Cap loss was a sham, a fraud, a huckster. The most generous word, if we go out of the way of fraud and sham and charlatan, the nicest word that I can think of is peddler. Now, is it necessarily wrong to be a peddler? Peddling water, peddling burritos, whatever it is that you peddle. You're walking around. Get your tickets here. Get your burritos here. Get your water here. Get your corn on the cob here. Whatever it is that you're peddling, you're peddling, you're peddling, you're peddling. But remember what peddlers do. They sell something in order to make a profit. And by the way, is it wrong to sell stuff for a profit? No. Then what's wrong here? Paul is condemning the false teachers who adulterated the gospel. What does that mean? They took the gospel and then they added their own filling. They added their own doctrine. And and instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by the apostles, as taught by Peter, James, and John, they began to add things. They began to import things. They began to add things to it. They took the gospel. They added their own filling. They added their own doctrine to the gospel of grace. They added legalism and other versions of what you have to do. They took the gospel and their opinion and then they tried to perpetrate it on the people and it was a fraud. And the point that Paul is making, Paul is in, in, in effect saying, 
I'm not peddling the gospel in order to make money. By the way, is it wrong for a minister to make a living from the ministry? I don't think so. What Paul is condemning are those ministers who seem to make the ministry their business of choice. And the ministry is a scheme. And you can tell it's a scheme because they'll have miracle wallets. They'll have miracle rubber bands that if you wear it around your hand, that God will give you a hundredfold blessing. They'll have miracle water and miracle cloths. They'll have all kinds of miracle things for your miracle circumstances. But Paul is making the point that his ministry isn't a business. Paul's ministry isn't a business. It's a burden. How is it a burden? Because he's, he's made his choice. It's the burden of every believer. It's the burden that every single person who knows Jesus and loves Jesus, he wants to see that person grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth and be filled with the truth. Paul isn't serving human beings just to be serving them. He's serving Jesus and his method. He is sincere in his method. He's sincere in the message and he's sincere in the motive. And by the way, here, sincere means Transparent. It means not trickery, not treachery. It's everything is out in the open. A.T. Robertson puts it in an old fashioned way, but I love it. My grandma would love it. He says Paul's berries were as good at the bottom as they were on the top. Some of you know what that means. Back in the olden days, they'd hide the the bad fruit at the bottom of the yogurt. and They'd put the good fruit at the top. And so A.T. Robertson is basically saying, hey, you know what? It's fresh from the bottom to the top. And he says, but as from God, everything Paul spoke was from God. The Lord God is the source of Paul's message, and it was from God that Paul obtained the strength to go forward. He says, from God in the sight of God, that is, in the service of God and in the sight of God, Paul serves conscious, aware of the fact God is watching, God is looking, God is giving an account. Paul knows that nothing is hidden from God's eye. And so Paul is keenly aware that there's a God in heaven and Christ in truth is keeping a careful record of Paul's ministry and the integrity of the gospel and the glory of Jesus was at stake. And so when he says in Christ, this means that Paul is speaking. In the name of Christ, in the authority of Christ, as a spokesperson for Christ. And guess what? You can't speak in the name of Jesus with the authority of Jesus as a spokesperson for Jesus. Unless you have his message. You can't offer something that Jesus isn't offering. And you can't give something that Jesus is unprepared to give. Have you ever met someone who wanted to be a Christian, but they didn't want to repent of their sin and they didn't want to repent of their sinful lifestyle and they just wanted to continue to drink and drug and do whatever it was that they thought would fill the void inside of their life. And they heard about the message of Jesus and they heard about the hope and they heard about the forgiveness and they heard about all of these things. But there was something inside of them. They just didn't they didn't want to change. They didn't want their heart to be different. They didn't want their wicked relationship to be different. They didn't want their circumstances to be different. They didn't want to jeopardize all of this stuff. And so the minister who speaks in his own name with his own message. This isn't the minister who's speaking for Christ. A minister doesn't have the right to offer something that Jesus never offers. Or to give something that Jesus never gives. But what does Jesus offer? 
forgiveness, grace, joy, fullness of life, a place in heaven. Now, I want you to think again. I want you to think, for those of you who have been with me the whole time from chapter 1 and chapter 2, I want to put it all in a great big perspective for you. In the first two chapters, we learned about setback and sorrow and suffering. But there's triumph. And there's joy in Christ. Because our sufficiency is in God. And in the Lord Jesus Christ. See what it says in verse verse uh, 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me. In chapter 2, all of you to some extent not to be too se- severe. And then chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is in God. The letter of 2 Corinthians began with a word of exaltation, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And then a word of explanation in chapter 1, verses 8 through chapter 2, verse 13. Then he, he ends this chapter, if you will, with a, a word of exclamation in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. And this is part of the point that I think I want you to get. This is the real Paul. This is the real Paul. This is what he's like for real. This is the Paul who lives not on the side simply of sorrow and suffering and trial, but he lives on this side of victory because he understands something that even in the suffering and even in the trial and even in the sorrow, he has An eternal perspective. He's constantly looking at things from God's perspective. And from from the heart and the mind of Christ. Meeting up with Titus. Hearing the good news from Corinth. This was like cold, filtered water in a dry and dusty land. And he realizes something. That in spite of the trial, suffering and sorrow, in the end, Jesus will triumph. Jesus will triumph. The gospel will triumph. Satan and his companions will wind up in chains. And the treasures and the honors and the glories of Jesus will remain with him forever. Now I want to use just a quick illustration before we have communion. Have any of you ever picked up a flower? Maybe out in the wild or even in a flower shop. You walk into the flower and you smell the fragrance of the roses and they are so beautiful. Isn't it interesting how someone can pick up a bouquet of flowers and experience joy? And another person picks up a bouquet of flowers and then they inhale the pollen. And then they begin to sneeze in an uncontrollable fashion. And then their eyes swell and their nose runs and their chest tightens. (laughs) How is it possible for two children to grow up in the same home with the same parents, the same love, the same teaching, the same discipline, And one turns to Christ, and the other turns to crime. One goes to heaven, the other goes to hell. How is it possible that one person smells life, and another person smells death? For Paul, he understands something. That whatever else he's supposed to do, the foundation of his ministry is going to be the character of Christ. The service and the motive of his ministry is going to be love. And the measure of his ministry is going to be sacrifice. And the authority of his ministry is going to be submission. 
to the lordship of Jesus and to the message of Jesus. And the purpose of his ministry is going to be the glory of God. And the tools of his ministry are going to be the word of God. And the power of his ministry is going to come from prayer to God. And the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Will serve as his model. And will be his message. Until the day that he has marched forward and deprived of his life. Paul understood something. That his was a march that was going forward to an ultimate realization. And the same is true, believe it or not, of each and every one of you You're listening to my voice right at this very moment. But one day, the voices will cease. And the lights will be turned out. And you will close your eyes. And you will experience the glory of the triumph of the message of Jesus. We're going to have communion in just a minute, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake. But let me pray for you just for a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person, Lord. Lord, as we open up the scriptures and we see these images, the image that Paul sees of a triumph, Of the glory and the honor and the accolades that are given to Jesus who will rule and reign. The captives and the treasures. The glories and the honor and the majesty. And how the gospel means life for some. And death for others. Lord, we, like Paul, pray that we would do the work of the ministry. That we would persuade men and women everywhere to turn from their sin, to turn to the Savior, to receive his life, to receive his forgiveness, to receive his hope. In Jesus' name, amen.